you're listening to the Risk Management Podcast, hosted by Rex Chatterjee. Hey everyone, and welcome to this episode three of the Risk Management Podcast with me, your host, Rex Chatterjee. For this episode three, it's actually our very first deep dive where we spend within you know 45 minutes to an hour speaking with someone about a specific event or a topic or topics uh, related to risk management for business. And it's with a heavy heart here that I welcome a, a dear friend and client via my um, law practice, Chatterjee League to the show today to discuss the events that transpired uh, just a weekend ago at the 2021 uh, World Festival held in Houston, Texas. Scott, as you'll hear over the course of this episode, was at the event very, very close to the epicenter of the uh, calamity that ensued. And you know this isn't this isn't uh, the the most cheerful of subjects, but at the same time. And I think you'll agree with us at the end of this episode that there were oversights and failings with respect to risk management that, you know, people died. Let's just be frank. Kids died because companies and individuals who really have companies behind them as well didn't act in the best interest of the people who paid good money and, you know, devote a lot of their attention, their fandom to the folks um, who profited from from Astroworld. So by quick introduction, our guest today is a gentleman by the name of Scott King. Scott, as I mentioned just a few moments ago, is a client of mine. He's the chief technology officer at a company called Arenda Inc. Now, as many of you know, I, Rex Chatterjee, practice law for startups and other companies under my law firm, Chatterjee Legal PC. And for the sake of full disclosure, Arenda is a client of mine, which is how I met Scott. And um no, Scott is a software developer developing software for high voltage power systems. I don't really get into the technical aspects of it. I'm not an engineer, but Scott can riff all day about um, the various dangers and um, risks that are germane to these sorts of systems. And Scott designs software for them. Risk is always on his mind. And in many ways, you know, I hate to say like Scott is a perfect guest for this because we wish we didn't have to have a perfect guest for this. But if there were someone who is aware of risk management and the principles and practices there, in and was also at Astroworld. Well, it's Scott, and we are, you know, fortunate to have him on today. Scott, prior to his time at Arenda, was at a company called Veridity Energy Solutions, which is now Ormat Energy Storage. And previously to that, uh, he was the head trader. He was the former head trader for Coke Quant Trading. That level of sophistication in business has been a hallmark of Scott's career. Uh, Scott, welcome. Thanks, Rex. Glad to be here. Yeah. So let's, I mean, I, I we're going to assume here that people are familiar with uh, Travis Scott and Astroworld. We don't need to waste time kind of going through that. If folks, if you're not familiar, you know, a quick Google Astroworld, one word, or Travis Scott um, will give you a quick, you know, introduction and summary to who the man is, the artist, and the the festival that uh, was held this past weekend in Houston, Texas. So, Scott, I mean, I guess let's just start with you giving us uh, a narrative, right? Tell us about how Astroworld came across your view mm -hmm. or your interaction with the world, what got you there, and what happened. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I was there for my son. Uh, my son, Ryan, he's 16 years old for a 16-year-old birthday, big Travis Scott fan. Uh, he really wanted to go to Astroworld. And these tickets went on sale back in, you know, I don't remember, April or May, right around the time of his birthday. And we were fortunate. You know, the, the, the concert sold out within an hour. And we were able to get tickets, very expensive tickets, 
Um, Scott, let me just jump in right there really quickly. It sold out within an hour. Weren't there 50,000 people at it? Uh, there was supposedly over 100,000 tickets were sold. In an hour? In an hour. So this is major. It's Well, it's huge. And we didn't even know the lineup of the artists ahead of time. It was all we wow. knew was Travis Scott, and it was his concert, and he's a superstar celebrity. Yeah. And we knew that the draw from previous years of festivals would be an exceptional lineup of talent. You know, not necessarily my music, but it's the music that my son really enjoyed. Sure. And something that was very special to him. So we were fortunate. We had seven laptops set up trying to get tickets. We you know, managed to get through the queue and scored those tickets. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was something that we looked forward to, you know, for six months. It was going to be a, a bonding experience for us. I guess it turned out in a in a diff- yeah. difficult kind of way to be a bonding experience. Yeah. Um, and we've gone to live shows before. It's something that we enjoy doing. So for six months, we looked forward to this concert, and uh, it was really a big deal. And Astroworld, Travis Scott is to Houston kind of like Jay-Z is to New York. Travis Scott mm-hmm. is a huge name in the community. He does a lot of great work in the community, a lot of fundraising. The whole week leading up to Astroworld, he was doing appearances for his charitable foundation and all the profits of Astral were going to go to his charitable foundation. All of them. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm well, sure. A significant amount though. That's, that's a, a huge amount. Huge right. Amount, yeah. Um, but Houston's very special to him and he's made that clear through, you know, through the whole experience. Um, so obviously it was a big deal for us. And it was something that we really looked forward to. I was a little apprehensive, <laughs> you know. I'm I'm no stranger to sure. live music, music festivals. I'm a big live music fan. You know, certainly before COVID, that was easier to do. Let um, me let me ask you one thing. You know, what was the from your youth and mm-hmm. uh, you know when you were in your teens and twenties? Like, what was the show that you went to that you would have held in similar like Ozfest? I'm thinking from my time <laughs> back in the late 90s there was a festival in houston called Buzzfest, and okay. it was a, a rock music festival put on by the local rock radio station it was the first festival i ever went to where there was some um, 10 15 artists on multiple stages who played uh silver chair was there um i you know honestly i can't remember all of them mm-hmm. you know certainly a bunch of bands that no one would have would recognize today. But there was like mosh pits, I'm assuming. And yes. yeah, so you're familiar with I'm, all of that in, and it can be done safely. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm no stranger to pits. I'm even, you know, now I'm 43, even in my, my later years, I've been a part of it. Certainly not as much as I, I was in my youth, sure. um, but I'm familiar with it. I understand how it goes. My experience has mostly been rock shows mm-hmm. and it's always been, I would characterize them as violent, but respectful. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe that sounds... Because funny. there's rules. Yes. And the artists, oftentimes, especially in... I mean, I've, I have a deep history with metal shows. Well, metal heads wouldn't say deep. But, <laughs> you know, the, the bands will, like, yes. stop the music yes. if someone's getting hurt. Every, probably every show I've ever been to at some point, multiple times, the artists stop the show, mm-hmm. call people out individually, get mm-hmm. security involved, mm-hmm. um, coach people on how to behave in the pit. Mm-hmm. It, it's really central to, to the whole experience. Yeah. Um, you know, one of my favorite bands, Five Finger Death Punch, mm-hmm. lead singer, Ivan Moody, I've seen him several times live. And in every show, at some point, he's had to stop tell people to chill out or mm-hmm. direct the crowd in a certain way to mm-hmm. ensure that everyone has a safe time. And mm-hmm. 
the attendees have always been very respectful. You know, if someone falls down, then we immediately make room, we get them back up, mm-hmm. we make sure they're okay, and then the show goes on. You're back to you know banging into people. There's an implicit culture. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, it's it's funny not to riff too philosophically, but now that like rap and rock are kind of converging, I wouldn't even say it's now, right? Limpus get back mm-hmm. when. Let's not get into the music aspect of this, but <laughs> you know, does the culture kind of translate? And especially at a hundred thousand people scale. You know, I don't think you've got 100,000 people who grew up going to metal shows or, or rock shows where you've got this culture and this sort of ingrained training in a way, right? Right. And, and I think what you said there was really key because the audience at Astroworld was extremely young, extremely young. You know, I, I was the only people there older than me were the cops. Yeah. Okay. You know, by, by quite a margin. Right. Um, so these are kids that haven't grown up yet yeah right correct maybe it's their first show yeah that they've ever been to with a whole different expectation and then you've got travis scott who is a t- very top tier superstar right above any of the bands i've ever been to sure this this guy was the draw right 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 and i mean add to that another what i would say is an aggravating factor but then again something that was known, right, when you go into something. This is one of the first big shows after the pandemic. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So if you're a young person, you know, and I say this to to my assistant all the time, it's like, man, I really feel for you, right? Because being 35 going into the pandemic, cool. I've done my going out and hanging out at the bars and really just, you know, doing stuff. I'm okay with being sequestered for two years and watching Netflix. That's right. fine with me. Right. But for a young person, you've got all this energy. Mm-hmm. And for mm-hmm. two years, it's been locked away. And now, really, I mean, for a lot of folks, Astroworld is their first big day out. Definitely. Definitely. I think it's the, certainly the first show of this scale that we had in Houston. Yeah. Um, you know, live, in person, you know, everyone in attendance. Uh, it, was, it, it was, I was really excited yeah. to get back to it. I, I missed live music. I, list, I missed the shows. Um, right before the lockdown happened, you know, Ryan, my son and I, we saw Trippy Red mm-hmm. um, live is in 2019. And that was in, I'm sorry, it's in 2020, right when COVID hit. Mm-hmm. It was like a week after that, everything locked like February, down. February, March. Off. Yeah. 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 So then take us into the day. I mean, I guess it's probably what in the morning you guys wake up, head over to where is this at now? I don't know Houston that well. Forgive me. Sure. So the area of Houston, it's uh, right around where the Texans play at Energy Stadium, mm-hmm. right next door to the Astro, uh, the Astro Dome, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, historic landmark. Mm-hmm. Um, and this festival took place outside in the parking lot mm-hmm. where they had constructed temporary stages there um, in in the orange lot or the, the parking lots there nearby. So it was all outdoors. It wasn't in the stadium. You know, there was everything was set up temporarily just for this event. Mm-hmm. Um, we got up early ish, I guess, you know, the gates opened at, at 12 or something. So we were there right at the opening mm-hmm. and definitely excited. Um, and, you know, in hindsight, it's easy to see all of the, the, the flags, the, the yellow flags that popped up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so starting out right away, it was apparent that things were different. Tell us about that. So one of the restrictions was you had to be vaccinated, mm-hmm. show proof of vaccination or have a recent negative COVID test. Mm-hmm. So the first gate, the first checkpoint we mm-hmm. get to, 
I've got my copy of my Vax card. I'm pulling out my license, and, and the lady there checking, she's she's like, I don't care about any of that. I'm not checking the papers, and hmm. puts the COVID band on both of us. Hmm. First gate passed. So let's let's just put a pin in this for a second and pause there. So, you know, we're talking about Astro World now because of the injuries, because of the the stampede of people, the trampling, mm-hmm. the all that stuff. We're not even discussing the COVID aspect. But mm-hmm. hypothetically, this could also have been a super spreader event. I'm sure if that were to be the case, we'll find out probably, you know, into leading into next week after mm-hmm. a week of incubation and, and folks. Um, yeah. So that's, Okay, so we already see like a, a failure in the management of personnel. Yellow um, flag. Yeah. Okay. Keep so going. the next gate after we get past the COVID gate, mm-hmm. you know, the next gate is security. Mm-hmm. Again, energy policy, clear bag policy, clear backpacks, clear bags, hydration mm-hmm. packs were allowed if they had a single pocket. Okay. That was my understanding. That's how I prepared. That was not enforced. The people going okay. through the gates had full backpacks that were. It was a cursory examination. Okay. The security really was not very tight. I think they were relying on metal detectors, um, and they didn't. They weren't really digging through bags. Okay. So people were getting in with who knows what. Yeah. In their backpacks and drugs don't set off a metal detector. Certainly not. And there was plenty of drugs. Yeah. At at the concert. So we passed that gate security, and then the next gate is the actual scanning your badge, your your wristband. Mm Hmm. And I don't know if something went wrong with the scanners or it just wasn't moving fast enough, but the people at that gate decided that instead of scanning, we would just all hold our wrists up and they would visually check to see if we had armbands on. And we all just kind of walked slowly through security while they're just looking visually to make sure that we have armbands. So, okay. So basically, if someone were to try to forge an armband, it would have worked? Absolutely. And... If someone had, I don't know, a wristband of some other type in the same general color, absolutely, it might have worked. Absolutely, yeah. Yikes. Okay. So, just three yellow flags. Yeah. Right now, in in hindsight, it's obvious. At the time, you know, I was there again. I'm there for my son. Sure. I wanted him to have a great experience. Yep. And you never think that anything could go as horribly wrong, you know, as it did, which is probably a hallmark of risk management in general. It's the the things that you don't you don't see the assumptions that you make. Yeah. Um, So as we get in, it starts to become apparent to me the vibe is just different. Okay. From the shows that I've been at. Yeah. Okay. Again, the audience skews very young, Mm -hmm. much younger than I'm used to. A lot of energy, excitement, which you would expect, but it was, it just felt different. Okay. Another aspect was they said there were hydration stations available. Right. Bring water bottles in, you can fill them up. Well, there were two hydration stations on the entire grounds. Um, and the one that we encountered had a line that was, I don't know, a couple hundred people long. Wait, so two stations for between 50 and 100,000? That's right. So that, that that just makes me, that, that's not even trying. No, it, it was it was obviously not nearly sufficient for what was going to be an all-day festival and, you know, in Houston in November, it's still pretty warm yeah. in the afternoon and the sun beats down on you. Yeah. Plus you're dancing all day. So the hydration is really important. Of course. So immediately I feel like the hydration situation is not sufficient. We weren't able to fill our bottles. And yeah. And not to mention, I mean, look, right, like drug use at concerts, despite being illegal, is still a reality. And for people that are, you know, 
I think the the move has been like, look, if people are going to do drugs, there are organizations that will like help them do it a bit more safely. Mm-hmm. And one thing that we know, right, is that people using pills and perhaps others, I'm no expert on this particular area, um, need to stay hydrated. Right. hundred percent. There was probably more hydration in play to water the football field mm-hmm. than the people at this event. Certainly. It was at that point that I made the decision to stay completely sober yeah. for the duration of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, between the vibe, the crowd, the lack of hydration, you know, and certainly I didn't go with the intent to get drunk. I'm with my 16 year old son. Sure. I wouldn't have minded a little buzz given the, you know, the nature of the concert and enjoying the, enjoying the show. Right. But I decided that, no, I, something was off and I felt like I needed a hundred percent of my awareness, you know, through the duration of the event. So, and looking back on it, I think that was a really important choice. Yeah. You know, even if it wasn't a matter of being intoxicated, I right. certainly would have been in much worse shape physically, you know, when it came to the end of the night, which I'm sure we'll get into here in a bit. Right, right, right. Yeah. And I mean, look, right, like clearly throughout your years of professional practice, like looking out for risk factors has been something that's germane to your experience, something you're already good at. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's not the job of people to be exceptionally good at that if they're not already when they go to an event like a concert. Right. Like you're not going into a war zone as a war correspondent here. And I, you know, there's just a a failing of organizational and institutional risk management here that didn't properly take care of their, I mean, not people, their guests. And let's think about what that word means. Their guests. Mm -hmm. A hundred percent. And you know, when you're building a culture of, of, when you're building risk awareness, right. Culture is critical. Of course. You can have the best policies, procedures, contracts, whatever. Charity Leo could draft the most amazing contract ever seen you know, on the planet. Sure. But if the people who are supposed to follow it aren't following it, it doesn't matter. Of course, right. That's right. You know, you have to start with safety and security first right. when you're building culture. And that, in hindsight, was clearly not present from my first 10 minutes of experience in getting through those gates. And so here's here's the crazy thing, right? Live Nation has had a history of safety violations, right? Um, You know, we'll post uh, show notes um, on our website, riskmanagementpodcast.com, for this episode, like all other episodes that we do. And our stellar assistant producer, Delia Kreveling, will find you the articles where, I mean, we learned through the articles ourselves, right, that since 2006, from a combination of court records, OSHA reports, and other sources that are verified, Live Nation's been linked with, uh, I think it's something like 250, no, 200 deaths and 750 injuries um, at their events. Um, but if you look at, like, from 06 to 2021, that's 15 years, whatever 15 times 12 is, and divide 200 by that, that's like almost one a month, mm-hmm. something around there, mm-hmm. right? Like there, there's an event company that's killing a person a month and the city of Houston still granted them a permit to, and we talked about this in a, in a previous quick take, I won't belabor the point here, belabor the point here, but you know, there's market power, right? Because if Ticketmaster, or sorry, if a uh, city of Houston says we're not going to allow Live Nation Ticketmaster to produce the event in Houston, Travis Scott finds someone else to work with. Live Nation is such a behemoth in the industry that it would be more economical and wise for Travis Scott to say, you know what, I'm just actually going to go with Live Nation and we'll do our event in Dallas or we'll do it in Louisiana. I don't know. Right. Um, so and of course, now with the like the political tie in that you're mentioning with like Travis Scott and his good works for the city of Houston, there may have been some, you know, 
I'm not like alleging any sort of untowards incentives here, but there was incentives for mm-hmm. the city of Houston to go along with this and get this thing done, mm-hmm. right? And maybe ignore some of the safety red flags. But well, um, and even and part of that too, when you dig in, there was a conflict between the city of Houston and Harris County in who was. There's it's a complicated situation, okay. And who owns what land and who's responsible for what permitting? Tell us more about that. I, I'm I'm no expert and I can't speak in detail here, sure. but my understanding and looking at it later was it wasn't clear who should have been issuing the permits. Mm-hmm. I think the county issued permits, but city of Houston was responsible for providing security in some way. I see. And may not have had the same permitting oversight as perhaps they should have. It, the responsibility and reporting lines were unclear. Got it. You know, another hallmark problem in risk management. Correct. Yep. Yeah, totally. I mean, that, that you said it. So go on, take us from there. So we talked about the hydration, hydration stations. There mm-hmm. were only two for nearly 100,000 people. That's a problem. It, it's, it's a big problem. Um, there are dozens of food trucks there. All of them had lines well longer than I was willing to stand in. Mm-hmm. There were other food booths and water available for purchase. That really wasn't a problem to get to, and that was great. But mm-hmm. again, it just seemed like the organization level wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And there's a tremendous presence of security, too. Mm-hmm. A little more so than I'm used to from, from shows. But I, I figure crowd skew is a little bit younger. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that's why. Sure. A big part of it. Absolutely. So there were two stages set up. And... Travis Scott was going to perform on the main stage where he did perform, and he was the only act performing on that stage all day. Mm-hmm. The other stage was set up for the rest of the artists, mm-hmm. and it was also a massive stage. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest stages I've seen, certainly in a temporary venue. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's where all the initial acts started, so that's where Ryan and I you know, started our, our experience there. Mm-hmm. I mean, when the first, ca- first act came on, I, I waded into the pit a little bit, check it out, see what's going on. Mm-hmm. And... One of the first things that surprised me as I'm getting into the pit and I start to kind of move towards the center, um, I run into a barrier that runs from center stage to the back of the crowd, like, you know, uh, perpendicular. Like bisecting it. Yes. Okay. The, it was cut completely in half. Now, that, that's you need that run for the cabling to get back to all the equipment in the back, the lights, the boards, sure. everyone who's running that. All of the shows I've ever been to previously it was either buried cable or on top of under some kind of a barrier or something. Yeah. You could you could enter from the right and exit from the left mm-hmm. or vice versa. Mm-hmm. That wasn't the case at this stage. I thought it was kind of strange. So it was like a catwalk, basically. Basically, it's yeah. a three foot high steel barriers with you know, three or four feet between them. So just cabling to run back. Cabling and security and camera folks to kind of walk through. Uh, again, it was strange. Okay. I didn't think anything of it at the time. Sure. Um, and the crowd was okay. It was Master P. No one was super excited about that, I guess. Yeah. Um, and his show wasn't the best. Uh, so it was fine. I bailed out of that. Met up with my son again later. Sure. Um, yeah, as the day progresses, we're seeing some of the acts. Um, I think the first real hint that things were not right came with the Don Tolliver set. Okay. Um, I didn't go into the pit for that one. My son did. He really wanted to have the pit experience. Sure. That was kind of a big part of being there. Mm-hmm. Um, when I met back up with him afterwards, he was he was sick. He was yeah, it had been the heat, the exposure. Mm-hmm. I didn't really probe him on what was happening in the pit. I, I coached him ahead of time you know, how to how to handle yourself. Mm-hmm. Don't fall down. Keep your arms up if the crowd gets tight. I, I think he followed those things, but he wasn't feeling well, mm-hmm. and he said the pit was pretty. 
it was pretty chaotic. Mm-hmm. Now, he'd never been in a pit before, so I, you know, I, I didn't know how to relate his experience to what I'm used to. Mm-hmm. So we ended up sitting out the next couple of shows, um, being in the back, watching on the screens, kind of observing the crowd. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing the usual concert stuff as the venue's getting more and more packed. There's some, you know, some drunk folks staggering around, you know, throwing up in one spot or another. Sure. Um, you know, there's some people clearly on other, you know, other substances, other substances of whatever kind, yep. you know, the, the cloud of marijuana smoke was, was <laughs> constantly present. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I said, I intended to be sober, but I think that the secondhand smoke you know, contact, uh, yeah, quite possibly was, was sufficient even in an outdoor venue. So as the night progresses, Ryan's feeling better. Uh, we check out the little baby show. We don't get into the pit, but we kind of are on the outskirts of it. It's mm-hmm. fine. Um, it was about seven o'clock and Travis Scott was scheduled to go on at eight forty-five, nine 9 o'clock. We weren't super interested in the artists that followed. So we decided to go ahead and go get ready for Travis Scott and go mm-hmm. stand in line. Well, you know, go get into the pit and get ready at seven o'clock, two hours before the show. Mm-hmm. So we approach the pit. It's already fairly packed. We're towards the outskirts of it. You know, I'm not thinking a whole lot is off or weird at this point. Mm-hmm. Normal stuff. But it starts to escalate from there. And even down to the music, that the pre-show music that was being played, mm-hmm. you, you imagine like the lead-in to an EDM song or, you know, Turn Down For What. There's the build-up. But in this case, the music never built up to anything. You never built up to a drop. It mm-hmm. was just constant anxiety-inducing Probably to amp up the crowd. Sure. It had been playing from this stage all day long. Mm-hmm. Um, and even some of the other, you know, we were joking about it in the pit. It's like uh, everyone was annoyed. We were getting irritated yep. by this constant anxiety-inducing music. Yep. Uh, another guy next to me starts talking about the Don Tolliver set and how crazy the pit was there. Mm-hmm. And that, was, that definitely piqued my interest because... You know, obviously, my son not having been in it doesn't have a frame of reference, but the people around me are talking about how crazy Don Tolliver got. Okay, well, uh, at that point, Ryan and I had a discussion. We made sure we had a backup plan. We, we knew we were going to get separated in the pit. We understood where to meet up, what to do, you know, and whatnot. Well, again, good risk management. Yeah, right. <laughs> Definitely, you always want to have a backup plan. Mm-hmm. Um, so, as time progresses, you know, the crowd starts to get tighter and tighter. And to some extent, we were moving forward by our own will, wanting to get a little bit closer to the stage from where we were. At this mm-hmm. point, we're probably 50 yards away, I guess, from the main stage. Okay. Or from the, the apex of the main stage. And as the other artist sets end on the, the secondary stage, the crowd gets tighter and tighter. So we're getting pushed more and more forward. And I thought, hey, this is kind of cool. You know, I'm going to be at the front of this huge event Mm -hmm. and maybe it's going to get tight and it might get a little bit crazy but you know whatever i've been in a pit before um well then a countdown timer pops up the countdown to travis's show yeah it starts to escalate yeah you know as the other shows have ended the crowd's pushing in we're getting tighter and tighter ryan and i at this point you know we get separated through the process of this countdown um and the crowd really begins. That's when the crowd crush first started. Okay. It, this is before the show even starts. Before Travis Scott takes the stage. 
you know, between the anxiety inducing music and the countdown timer and these other shows ending and people continuing to, to push in, mm-hmm. we're just getting further and further crushed. And so it, it starts to get really uncomfortable and my spidey senses begin to tingle. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this, this doesn't feel right. I'm not real sure about this. You know, I'm kind of surprised I'm not having a panic attack at mm-hmm. this point myself. Um, but I was feeling good, feeling strong. So, and I, I definitely wanted to experience the concert um, and experience this whole you know, thing with my son. And I also had the thought of, I know how this goes. The artist comes out, it'll probably get tight, but then everybody wants to dance and have fun and jump around. And so it should level out a little bit. Mm-hmm. So at that point, Travis comes out and the, you know, the countdown ends, the crowd's at fever pitch. He comes out and begins the show. And what I thought was tight before was half mm-hmm. of what it became, where there was probably seven different people touching me and like pushed into me. Mm-hmm. And where you no longer have any control over your own movement. You're mm-hmm. just subject to the mercy of the waves of the crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, and even in the lead up to him coming out, I was getting pushed further forward. Just I, I didn't intend to go forward. It's just what happened mm-hmm. as I was flowing through the crowd. I, I didn't have a lot of control over what was going on. So again, I'm thinking it's going to lighten up when after he takes the stage and things settle down. It decidedly did not. You know, once he came out, then as I said, the crowd got much tighter. It, it was very uncomfortable. You couldn't dance. You couldn't really see. You couldn't enjoy the show. Um, but I, I was at that point probably 30 to 40 feet away from Travis on stage. Maybe normally what would be four or five rows back from, you know, uh, from that very front part of the barrier. He begins his set and things are pretty intense. Um, the crowd's not lighting up like I thought it would. If anything, it's just getting worse. I'm looking around and people are, there's panic in eyes. Mm-hmm. And at this point, probably about the second song, I went back and reconstructed my timeline. Um, it was about eight minutes in. I decide I need to get out of here. Mm-hmm. And as I turn to look back, I see this girl. And she's between two individuals in an impossibly small space mm-hmm. for a human being. And her chin is kind of up on top of the shoulder of one of the guys. And her throat's being compressed. Yeah, that's... She's clearly having a panic attack, um, can't breathe. I can hear her saying, you know, help me, somebody help me. Yeah. So I, I, I look at her. She makes eye contact with me and like just stares into my soul. I'll never forget it. And she says, please help me, you know, directly to me. Yeah. I'm like, I'm thinking in the back of my head, I don't know if I can get out of here myself. Yeah. But I can't. What right. am I going to do? Right. So I'm like, okay. And let's pause. This is not the kind of like thought you thought you would think no. at the start of this day going to a like festival. No, you know, I thought worst case scenario, my son might come out with a broken nose or, you know. Worst gets, case. Worst case. Worst case, yeah. Get stomped in a little bit, something like that. It happens in a pit. And yeah. it would be a, a, a story to tell later. Sure. You know, an experience. Yeah. Maybe uncomfortable at the time, but definitely a... A fun story to tell later about how crazy the Travis Scott concert got. Sure. Definitely n- no clue. Now, in retrospect, I had no business 
being in that pit, and neither did he. Yeah. You know, but I I didn't want to take away from his experience. Sure. He wanted to be a part of a chaotic pit. He wanted to be a part of this. This was like a personal hero for him. Mm-hmm. He's been listening to Travis Scott for years, has merch all over his room. Mm-hmm. Huge, huge fan influence. He, my son produces music for himself. Mm-hmm. Big influence on what he does. Mm-hmm. So no, no, not not a clue. And I, I overrode my own sense of you know, risk aversion to sure. be there for him and be a part of this. Yeah, yeah. So, so you see the girl. I see the girl, and you know she says, "Please help me." Um, so I'm like, "I got you, okay, I got you." And I grab her hand, and I, I pull her out between where she's stuck. And we begin to try to make our way, you know, out, just out, whatever we can do. Mm-hmm. And at this point, I no longer see individual human beings. It, it's, it's just a, a mass like quicksand that I'm trying to force my way out of to get through with this young lady in tow. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm 5'9 on a good day, 150 pounds soaking wet. I, I'm not the strongest to be able to get out of a big situation like that. Sure. And here I've got this this lady in tow. So as we're 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 pushing, we're making some slow progress. Um, you know, I I, I kind of run into something on the ground, and I look down, and there's a guy who is laying face down, completely prone, making no effort to help himself up. Right. To protect himself. He's, he's getting stomped on. Yeah. And at a glance, you know, this guy's probably 200, 220. You know, I've already got somebody I'm trying to rescue. Yeah. And here's this guy on the ground in clear distress. And the people around him are just... Everybody's just dancing around. So I start screaming, you know, help him up. Somebody get him up. He's yeah. in trouble. Yeah. No one... There was no response. It's just partying yeah. all around me. And that, that, I think, is the most one of the most surreal moments is that it's not like this is a crisis situation with alarms blaring and it's clear that you need to get out. This is an ongoing party that is just raging all around you. And I don't know if this individual made it or not. My guess is he's one of the nine that died. Yeah. You know, I don't know. It certainly was not a good situation for him at yeah. nine ten at this point when we're trying to get our 10 minutes into the show, 10 minutes into the show. Um, so that also, and I think his presence there and, and started to cause a a crowd collapse and we were right on the edge of what was becoming a pile of human bodies. Right. At one point I went about almost went down myself Yeah. and fell over at a 45 degree angle I'm not quite sure how I saved myself. Um, I think part of it was grabbing on to the, the, the lady I was helping. You know, she was stuck in the crowd, so yeah. she gave me the leverage to pull up. Yeah. Um, you know, while at the same time, people were clawing at my clothes, trying to get themselves up, yeah. ripping my jacket off. Yeah. And, and that was the other thing, too. The heat was just, it was 40 degrees outside at that point, but it was 110 in that pit. Right. And every breath you took in was had already been you know, inside of four or five different other people at that point. So the yeah. oxygen just wasn't there. Right. Um, so I barely saved myself from going over. I turn and look, and you know, there's a, another guy who's on the ground. And the same kind of deal makes eye contact with me. And you can just, there's a difference in the look 
Oh yeah. Of terror. And he says, please help me up, please holds out his hand. So I have to let go of my, my friend's hand, my, my new friend. Yeah. Um, I grab a hold of him, pull him and get him upright. And he seems okay. I, I turn to look back and I don't know what happened into the girl that I was trying to save, trying to get out of there. Mm-hmm. So at this point I'm thinking, you know, what, what do I do? I don't, you know, I, I told her I got her. I'm going to get her out. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, really concerned for my own safety at this point too. And then somehow I, I look back and then I feel her hand. She grabbed a hold of me. We freeze each other with a death grip. I put my arm around her waist, pulled her in real close and said, look, stay, you know, stay tight. We got to stay together. Mm-hmm. And at that point I just put my shoulder down and just started pushing. Yep. And, you know, there was no longer any wait for a gap. Try to see what you could do. It was just get the heck out. Mm-hmm. Um, so we pushed, we pushed together. And at some point, you know, maybe a couple minutes later, another guy sees what's going on. He's like, Hey, are you trying to get her out? I'm like, yeah, I am. He said, okay, great. I'll help you. So he got here other side and together we were able to power our way out pretty good. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know what happened to her. She was lucid enough at the end to come over and, and you know, she thanked me. And of course I said something silly, like any time you know, yeah. it's going to happen again. Um, so I get out and I, in retrospect, I guess I was in shock because I wasn't really processing at a deeper level what was going on. Right. You know, I I said, I'm no stranger to pits. I've been in pits before people get injured. It happens. It's part of the experience. So it, it, it seemed like it was definitely next level, but I had no idea that it was to the extent that it was. Um, so I go to the backup meet point. And wait for my son. Uh, and I'm there for probably 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, nervous. Not worried. Sure. I, I, he told me he could handle himself. I, I, I believed him. Um, but I'm, I'm waiting. I'm nervous. Kind of watching the events unfold around me. Um, at some point, I had to go to the bathroom. So I, I ran off to the, uh, to the facilities. On my way back, you know, I see a troop of police officers running towards medical with some unconscious girl. You know, over one of the guy's shoulders. Mm-hmm. And that was the point where I was like, this is, this is getting out of hand. Yeah. You know, I, I obviously I should have realized that far sooner. Um, and that's something, you know, I'll, I'll carry with me forever. And that's the thing. It's like, that's traumatic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's, that's injury. Mm-hmm. It and was not all injuries are physical. Let's be, let's be very clear about that. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, what I can tell you is I'm still having trouble reconciling the memories as something that really happened to me. Like it still feels fake. Yeah. Like I'm an imposter telling a story that couldn't have happened because it, how could this ever happen to me? You know, me, Yeah. it doesn't happen to me. This is this something that happens to other people sure. to be so close in this experience. Um, so at that point I got pretty concerned about what was happening to Ryan. Um, but as I walked up to the meetup point, then he comes running up to me. Um, clearly flustered and you know, he's, he tells me he's lost his phone. Um, so he lost his communication with me and that certainly it, you know, helped his panic attack. Um, it helped him to have a, a panic attack, losing that, lost his merch, his, his, his treasured hoodie, his beanie, mm-hmm. but thankfully physically, you know, okay. Yeah. Obviously could have been far, far worse. Oh yeah. Um, you know, and he relates the experience of, of, you know, losing these, losing his phone, his lifeline, 
and asking for help and you know people telling him in no uncertain terms where to go and not you know not willing to offer any assistance to him you mm-hmm. know, at all mm-hmm. and i think that was that's something he'll carry with him forever yeah you know as an experience him growing up where we are in a fairly nice part of town nice neighborhoods great schools you could walk up to any person on the street that you see and they would help you sure and that was just not the case here there was people way more interested in the performance and the experience and whatever the humanity was gone and we were talking about the the culture mm-hmm. around the rock shows that we you know each respectively grew up going to right and how there was a sense of community among the folks in the pit that was also Beatrice, that was supported by the mm-hmm. folks on stage. Mm-hmm. And it all collectively helped ensure the collective security of everybody that was there. Right. We didn't see that here. No, no, not at all. It was systemic. You know, yeah. there, there was, there, the culture was around the performance and the success of the performance. Right. Um, I think it was exacerbated by the fact that it was live streaming on Apple, you know, as yeah. a, a major promoter of this. Um, and and I, it's not fair to speculate necessarily on, on all the pieces of it. But um, so, yeah, yeah Son and I were reunited. Uh, he was obviously very flustered. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, we decided to we decided to go. Yeah. Um, and this was about. 930 940 right when the mass casualty event was called that was about the time we were heading to the parking lot mm-hmm. in some ways I'm thankful yeah. that he lost his phone um, that got him out of the pit yeah, yeah that would have been different I'm also thankful for the the young lady that I helped carry out because I think in a lot of ways she helped give me the focus to yeah. get out you know may, maybe physically it was harder but certainly it was helpful to have that um, sense of responsibility for someone else that really drove me to do whatever I had to do to get out of there. Like to, to characterize it, it seems like the look in her eyes told you what was up. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I don't know, you know, I don't know what would have happened to her. And there's, when you read about this, I, I, other people who were there had the same, they had the same experience. You yeah. know, you can read about individuals who rescued other individuals. So there yeah. was humanity in the crowd. There were some of us that were there, but sure. by and large, the soundtrack of the tragedy was Travis Scott playing his concert. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know that I'll ever be able to look at him or his music in the same way. Sure. Um, you know, and in, in retrospect, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens as the investigation unfolds. Yeah. As to what really went down. I think it was a catastrophic failure across the board of, you know, an inability to understand, like we said at the top of the call of the of the cast, mm-hmm. it was there was no culture, yeah, of risk management. It wasn't first and foremost in everyone's minds, right? The performance was first and foremost, yeah. Um, no, we had heard. Sorry to, to mm-hmm. cut in here. We had heard a report. Um, I don't know if this, um, you know, if if your experience there, um, if if you were there to see this, right? But we. There's a video apparently of Travis Scott becoming aware that ambulances were having to like come yes. into the pit basically, mm-hmm. and he keeps going. I was there for that. Um, I wasn't in the pit. That yeah. was in the part when I was I had extracted myself. I saw the ambulance in the crowd. Um, he stopped the show, brought the lights up. Yep. You know, saw there was an ambulance in the crowd. Yep. He looked confused. 
um, spent maybe 20 or 30 seconds. So like an ambulance driving through a sea of people. Yeah, it was, um, you know, it was a, a, a golf cart sized. Oh, okay. You know, it wasn't like a, a large. But it's still like a vehicle. Yes. A vehicle. Designed for emergency situational mm -hmm. deployment, driving mm -hmm. through a sea of people, kind of like the way a shark cuts through a large crowd of fish at the aquarium or something. Yeah. It's yeah. A jarring sight. Definitely not something you would expect to see. What happens next? Um, well, so he pauses the show and he's like, are we good? Are you good? And says, you know, if you're good, put your middle fingers to the sky. And so everybody, you know, throws up their middle fingers and then he, he, you can see the quotes. He's like, okay, and you know what we're here to do to make the ground shake. And then the concert resumes. Yeah. Ambulance still in the pit. Yeah. He's still trying to take care of people. Um, and people start dancing on top of the cart. Like what? They, they, yeah, they climb up on top of the cart. They're dancing on it. You know, it's absurd. Yeah, it's absurd when when you think about it in retrospect. What what was going on there? Um, at the end of the day, this was Travis. This was Travis Scott. This was his concert. Yeah, the everyone there was there to see him. Yeah, as evidenced by we all bought tickets to it when he was the only artist that we knew was going to be performing. Mm -hmm. um, so in any kind of, when you think about where does the book ultimately stop, it stops at the top. The person who's responsible for risk in an organization, it ultimately is the CEO. Yeah. You know, and Travis Scott yeah. was the CEO. He was the owner of this concert. This mm -hmm. concert is entirely his brainchild. Mm -hmm. Every aspect of it came from him. And you read about the police talked about well, we said to stop the show, but we didn't want to. We couldn't stop it because of fear of riots, and I get that. And if the police chief of Houston walks out on stage, it takes a microphone away from Travis Scott, then they would have torn the place apart. Yeah, but you can't tell me that the producer who has a direct line to you know the, the monitors, the monitor in his ear, couldn't have said, "Hey, look, things are escalating. We're concerned about deaths." I, I don't obviously I don't know you know Travis Scott personally, but I have to believe that he could have de-escalated the situation. He could have brought control. Yeah, I'm sure he wasn't aware that the level at which it was, and if he had been made aware, then I, I have to believe as a human being, you know, he would have done something to de-escalate and stop. But instead, the show just continued to escalate from there. You know, I, I wasn't there when Drake came on. Okay, but that was a. That was definitely something I was afraid of. And one of the drivers for me to get out of the pit was, well, if it's this crazy now and they're going to bring out a surprise guest who we don't know who it's going to be, but it's going to be someone, yeah. another top tier superstar that's going to come out because that yeah. was the draw of this festival. Sure. Um, and to the fact that he still came out and they continued, continued to play on you know, for 40 minutes or something after this was already unfolding, that, yeah. it's an amazing failure of so many pieces and so many individuals that it, it, again, it comes back to the culture, right? You can have all the procedures, policies that you want. Yeah. But if you don't enable and empower everyone at every level to feel like they can speak up and say something, you know, there's other stories of people that were trying to tell the camera person, you know, their people are dying. You have to tell someone to stop the show mm -hmm. and they're being blown off by the cameraman. Yeah. You can't tell me that if you had a good culture of risk management. That that would happen. No. Yeah. The right culture, that person would have said, I'm going to at least escalate this and tell someone yeah. you know, that uh, this is happening. Sure. Obviously, you know, that didn't occur. No one felt empowered 
yeah. to speak up. Everyone was only empowered to ensure the performance went on and that the experience continued, you know, for all of these Which paying is guests. A commercial motive, right? This is what happens when you place profits over people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and going back to the pit design. Yeah. I think when you go back to look at it and you look at the, the uh, I've got some pictures I can show you mm. um, and, you, and you can post, but there were multiple funnels essentially created by the way the barriers were laid out mm. such that there was no escape from the crush. Yeah, I talked about earlier how if you if the center is not blocked off, you can enter from the right and you can leave from the left. Right. Was the waves of energy of people pushing in on one side it doesn't crash against anything. It flows. It flows. Yeah. So it can ebb and flow back and forth. And you don't have a choke point. You have one straight line in front of the artist where people can crowd in, but it's really difficult to you know create the crush. This thing sounds like it was designed like a trap. It was. Absolutely. Like a kill funnel. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. You know, in retrospect, it was definitely a kill funnel. Yeah. And... That, I think, will be a major takeaway of how, if you're going to have pits like this again, how do you design them in a way that won't allow this to happen? And I think you've got to have a way, you know, three, each of the, the pit sections had three metal barriers, like a, you know, three sides of a square. That's what created that, you know, funnel. And the, and the corner of it was where you went to see Travis. So everyone's pushing into this corner. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's the crazy thing is like, this is not the first ever big show or show of this scale. I think there have even been bigger concerts than this mm -hmm. without this issue. So it's like we have the design for what the pit at a mega, mega concert should look like. Mm -hmm. Why didn't we apply that here? And the funny thing is, this is probably produced by Live Nation if it was in the last couple of, you know, last decade Absolutely. Or so. so what do they decide to get creative here and for what purpose? <laughs> like... You know, it was a, it's a temporary stage. Yeah. It's not a permanent facility. Yeah. You know, if you're 90,000 people can attend a college football game. Sure. And have a great time. Yep. Of course, not everybody has a seat. Sure. And the facility is designed for it. Yeah. You know, it's all set up that way permanently. Yeah. Um, you know, I think another critical failure here is that this stage wasn't used and it was saved for Travis Scott. So there was no testing. Of there was no testing. No one, I think if the Don, Don Tolliver was probably the craziest show leading up to that. Right. If Don Tolliver had used this stage, then maybe. They would have realized. You would have had a couple of you know, significant injuries that came from that. And then maybe somebody would have said, hey, we, we might have a problem. Yeah, we need to fix this. You know, and in comparison to the other festivals I've gone to, multi-day events, mm -hmm. you have big headliners. But not everybody's there necessarily to see you know, Five Finger Death Punch sure. or Disturbed or Manson or whoever yep. it is. Mm -hmm. There's people on further down the list that you're really there to see and you're interested in the headliner show, but it's not like a critical part of your experience. And there's multiple headliners as well, multiple artists at that same level who are mm -hmm. performing at different times. Right. So the collective crowd energy gets to peak mm -hmm. at various points in time. That's a great point. That's exactly, you know, you're absolutely right. But at this show... All 50,000 people that were there, every single one of us the funnel. was there to see Travis Scott. Yeah, You had a young crowd high on a variety of substances mm -hmm. that have had no opportunity to interact like this for years yeah. to see this absolute superstar. Yep. You know, and again, in retrospect, it's obvious. 
that this was going to be a major situation, you know, and I, I, I wish that I had had the foresight to, you know, disappoint my son and say, no, we're not going into the pit. This is going to be crazy. Let's stay back and watch on the screens. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, it's absurd. Yeah. It's absurd. And, you know, and again, I think whenever you look at these kinds of crisis type events, these major situations, it's usually not one thing. No. It's not one particular thing. You go, oh, yeah, aha, we'll fix that going forward. Right. It's multiple minor failures that in aggregate come together with a lack of imagination that creates something that you've never seen before, that mm-hmm. creates your edge case. Sure. Your, your Six Sigma event. Yep. And. Yeah, no, it's so the funny thing, right? When we because every not every I shouldn't say in in such broad terms, but like when you talk about risk events that occur and I would say the majority or at least the plurality of them have these small precipitating factors that then, you know, mm-hmm. coalesce into something bad. Um where you see organizations and, you know, events or what have you that are able to turn these small items into nothings as opposed to as opposed to allowing them to accrete is culture. Mm-hmm. Like if you have a strong there's a famous Ross Perot quote, right, where he you know, he had this company called EDS, Electronic Data Systems mm-hmm. down in Texas, hiring former Marines like himself to you know, computerize medical data. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, he made a fortune doing that. And, um, you know, he said, look, he, he later joined the, the board of, I think it was Ford Motor Company. And, you know, when asked to give a compare and contrast between, um, you know, his previous experience and then his experience looking at Ford uh, or whatever car company it was, forgive me, I don't remember the exact company. Um, he said, look, you know, at, at EDS, the first person to see a snake kills the snake. At this company, Someone sees a snake. They tell their boss about the snake. The boss maybe forgets, mm-hmm. tells someone else about the snake. Finally, it makes its way up to the board, and they form a subcommittee about snakes and hire in a consultant who knows a lot about snakes. <laughs> Meanwhile, the snake's bitten 50 people. Right. Right? Right. So, like, you need a culture of risk management and of solving problems ab initio so you don't allow garden snakes to turn into anacondas. Mm-hmm. Um, and now to bring it all home, when you talk about the... You know, and this is just something that is axiomatic in risk management and compliance circles and legal circles to a certain extent as well, which is that a, creating a culture of compliance starts with tone from the top. Mm-hmm. It starts with leadership. 100%. It starts with messaging. And from what it sounds like, there is a complete absence of that, right? It's like, look, if there's an ambulance, you know, at your house, let's say, and your kids are at home, you know, with a babysitter and you're off doing something and you call up and they say, yeah, there's an ambulance here. But no. And you say, well, are you guys OK? And they say, no, no, we're fine. I still think you'd probably end the dinner and go home. Right. Right. Because right. there's an ambulance. There's still a problem. Right. So there's an ambulance. And Travis Scott says, mind you, they're not his kids, but they are his constituents in a way. Sure. They are his guests in a way. And mm-hmm. he says, hey, are you guys OK? Like there's guests staying over at your house. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we're fine. Oh, okay, cool. Well, right. I guess I guess I'll just take your word for it, right? I'm not responsible for you guys at all, so sure. And you don't go back and continue the party. No. You know, and I think 
when you look at it as well, not only was the, the, that culture not there, it was actively being promoted in the opposite direction. You know, it, it's a it's a thing at the Travis Scott concerts. It's yeah. the Ragers yeah. being wild, being crazy, yeah. you know, having a crazy pit. He's been arrested before for mm-hmm. inciting crowd issues. So it's part of the culture that he's promoting. Right at his shows to be wild to for you know i think i'm certain there are people today who were there and they see it as street cred sure that they were at the show where people died <laughs> i mean you don't have to look too hard on twitter yeah to find this kind this point of view you know I, I, hopefully that's not a majority of people or it's a very small group but sure. there's definitely ones that are there and, and to some extent, you know, if it's a rough crowd, maybe somebody gets a broken nose or whatever, then yeah, okay, well, that was, I survived that incident. That was big. But this was, you know, nine people died, probably 10, 11, when it yeah. all said and done, plus yeah. the hundreds of others that had injuries or, you know, mental or physical that are co- going to come away from this. Sure. You know, my, my life is forever altered. Yeah. You know, I... Young ladies is as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I, it's not going to stop me from going to live shows. Sure. It's not going to stop me from going into a pit again, but, but I will think about them differently. I will definitely think about it differently. I will definitely approach it differently. Yeah. Um, but so let me ask you one thing. That's why I wasn't, uh, forgive me, everyone. I'm not the biggest Travis Scott expert. I <laughs> was not aware of his history of, uh, mm-hmm. uh, of being uh, arrested. I know that he is the kind of artist that does promote a bit of a riotous environment, mm-hmm. but I hadn't looked into his arrest record, but, um, so, but if I were, I mean, I assume that the folks who, you know, one man alone doesn't just, it takes an organization to put on an event like this. Right. And in this case, probably several organizations. I mean, Apple was involved, you know, Live Nation's involved, obviously. You've got governmental agencies or entities like the county and mm-hmm. the city that were involved as well. And there was probably never a document that documented all the various risk factors. Like, okay, you know, you've got post-pandemic. There was. There There is a document. The Paradox Report. Um, The the health report? No, there was was a a procedures document for, it was a 56-page document that the concert had. Uh It was labeled version 0.1. Oh, great. And it was unclear that anyone, you know, followed it. And it, it it had some procedures for mass casualty events. It had some procedures for crowd issues. Um, and those, I, I'm assuming they didn't include continuing the show in an ambulance <laughs> driving through the crowd. No, I mean, yeah. highly unlikely yeah. anyway. You know, again, it's it's a failure from the top. Yeah. And it was, it was Travis Scott's show. Yeah. He was the unequivocal leader, the creator of all of it. There was a, the culture of his music and the culture that he promotes yeah. is one of, of raging yeah. and, you know, have, being wild. But so if I was if I was the person on Apple, and I'm sure Apple had, or maybe Apple's not the right entity to, mm-hmm. to look at here, but there are people who gave, you know, time, money, effort, and brand value to lend to mm-hmm. Astroworld. And if you see that the principle behind it is someone who has a history of run-ins with law enforcement around the riotous events and the risks associated therewith at his events, maybe you want to then put a condition on your support saying, look, I'll give you all of the support, but I want you to do a better job of 
risk management. Because mm -hmm. frankly, if people die here or something really bad happens, it's not just going to be Travis Scott, whose name's dragged through the mud. It's mm -hmm. going to be ours as well. And we have shareholders or what constituents, what have you, right? Right. Um, but consider, you know, you have this artist, this situation, the kind of crowd that he attracts mm -hmm. and what he promotes. And then you go, you go to him and you tell him, look, I need you to completely change who you are and be and tell people you're concerned about safety. Yeah. You know, that you don't want anyone to get hurt. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a very soft approach Yeah, for someone who's known as a very hard artist. Yeah. You, you can't do that. You know, someone else has to be a part of that process sure. and, and the design you know, needs to be there. But again, it's about the culture. I think also there are a lot of organizations involved. Yeah. And there is a lot of opportunity for people to pass responsibility. Yeah. It, there was no central command that controlled all aspects of what was going on, at least as far as I, I could see. The paramedics seemed disconnected from the fire department, was disconnected from the police department. Yeah, we had seen a report where the fire department and the paramedics lost communications with one another. Mm -hmm. that, that, that wasn't established in the first place. Well, that's wait. So this fifty-six page document, what did it have in it? I mean, first of all, uh, and we should maybe tag in our assistant producer Delia here to to see if that's publicly available. Um, I haven't seen that yet. I've done a, a bit of research. I haven't um, contacted other sources or whatnot. But um, yeah, I mean, if that document is available publicly, I'd love to see what mm -hmm. their quote unquote risk management plan looked like. Because the first thing you would want to see is. Are our safety resources able to communicate in real time and get to where they need to be to deploy the care they need to deploy? Right. And at the scale that they are likely to need to deploy it. I think we'd seen a stat that by 9 p.m., over 300 people needed medical attention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And mind you, 300 out of 100,000 is not a lot of, in terms of a percentage, but that's right. a lot of people. Absolutely. And if you said the resources were two watering stations. I mean, I want to know how many paramedics were actually there. Right. Right. There was, I'll tell you, the paramedic and security presence was, it was extraordinary. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a ton of HPD. Mm -hmm. There was a ton of private security. Mm -hmm. There was a ton of paramedics there. I just don't know to the extent that they were all able to work efficiently together. Mm -hmm. And it's, it seems to be unclear who was really in charge. You know, that, was it the festival director? Was it the producer? Was mm -hmm. it Travis Scott? In any case, there was no sole responsibility some when you're building good risk management someone ultimately has to own it sure you know it, it is up to the individuals everyone to raise you know flags when they see that but someone someone's ultimately the owner of this someone has to be responsible that understands and coordinates it all and can see the big picture absolutely because there was a lot there are a lot of yellow flags yeah. that popped up through the day probably some red flags you know when you think about it yeah and i have to think that a reasonable person observing it all in totality would see it as a red flag would see it as like, Hey, there's a potential, you know, big problem coming up here. So that's where I was getting at is so like, so for us at Titan gray, um, you know, we built dashboards, mm -hmm. right. Um, and yeah, I, I would like to think that if we had built a dashboard with all of the actual key facts here, we would have seen enough indicators that on a holistic perspective, mm -hmm. you know, I can't, I won't Monday morning quarterback, but like mm -hmm. we build systems that are designed to do exactly that. Mm-hmm. You're saying that a 56-page document, I want to get my hands on it. Whatever it did, it probably didn't do that. It didn't give that holistic perspective. And if it did and it was ignored, well, then the people behind it are culpable. Right, right. Yeah, and, you know, the, the fact that it was 
you know, versioned one. Well, that's also a huge problem, right? Like, I don't think I've ever activated a version one of anything. <laughs> right. Grocery list never gets activated at version one. Right, right. This is this is some kind of pre-draft. And it was the, the Houston Chronicle. They've done a, a, an amazing job. I've heard, yeah. Of covering, you know, if you want to learn about it, that's a great place to go. Um, the, the resources there have been great. And I've, it's been therapeutic for me sure. to read about it, talk about it. Yeah. You know, it's helping me to process what's going on. Um, but they're the ones that, that you know, attained the document and you know, reported this, this information. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, it's incredible. It's just absolutely incredible yeah. how it all, the, 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 the confluence of, of things that all came together to create this, this terrible event. Yeah. Well, you know, look, Scott, uh, I'm super glad to hear that you and that Ryan are okay, that, um, you know, that it wasn't any worse. Right. Um, as well. Right. Um, well, you know, he was, we got out of there alive. Yeah. And that not everyone can say that. That's more than you can say for a lot of some, for some folks. Yeah. You know, um, so I'm absolutely thankful. Obviously, yeah. you know, I'm thankful that neither of us were hurt. Yeah, and but it's definitely something that it's going to take us some time, you yeah. know, to to unpack. Part of the reason why you know we really wanted to have you come on and tell this story and have it you know live on on our podcast for forever, hopefully, um, you know, is that we can't forget about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have weekly discussions with, uh, my assistant producer, um, about policy windows and news cycles and things like that. And, you know, look, do I think we're going to get federal legislation passed in the wake of Astro World 2021? We probably should, mm-hmm. but I don't think it's going to happen. No, but the main and sort of like larger point is that this also nevertheless should not become a big nothing burger. Mm-hmm. Federal legislation, probably not going to happen, but should businesses take away something from this and say, Hey, wait a second. Like this could have been like, you know, we do things that sometimes, you know, maybe mirror the the lack of risk management that was seen here. Mm-hmm. Right. Like this should be a moment for, anyone in business doing anything where people are involved mm-hmm. take a step back and say, well, wait a second, what can we learn from this right. moment in history? Ho- hopefully, hopefully we come away with an awareness, certainly around festivals that are in temporary setups. Sure. You know, it, it's when you're in a brick and mortar situation, it's been tested many times. Yeah. that's you right. Know, they understand the ebb and flow of the crowds, how it all works. Yeah. But in these these pop up situations, you know that was I think it was something. Uh, my son told me it was like a five million dollar stage that was built, yeah. and I believe it. Yeah, oh yeah. The the LED screens involved in the stage were you know probably half of that. Yep. But it was put together for a two day festival. Right. You have to wonder how much thought and testing went into the design, and if there was thought and testing, then what was found. Did they, did, did they really think through all of the aspects? But again, it comes back to culture. Yeah. You have to cultivate a culture that prioritizes safety, security, and risk. If you don't, then these things happen. 
Yeah. The, the best policy document in the world isn't going to save you if your people aren't empowered to speak up yeah. when they see a problem or they're focused on the wrong thing. Yeah. You know, it, it's it's extraordinarily unfortunate that lives were lost. We here. see this all the time at Titan Gray. Yeah, that, you know, policy and procedures, um, they have to be living, breathing documents, mm-hmm. right? You can't, you know, we'll, we'll see companies all the time that say, look, we want to bolster our compliance or our risk management around XYZ. We need the greatest, greatest policy in the world. And the first question is, well, okay, are you prepared to comply with the greatest policy in the world? Right. Because what's on the paper doesn't mean a heck of a lot if it is a paper tiger. Right. If it sits on the shelf doing nothing and then your business doesn't actually change. Mm-hmm. And we're not really interested in, in doing that. That's not effective and it's not a good look for anybody. Right. It's, um, it's only as good as the people that are enforcing it. Oh, yeah. You know, and and the best written policy can't cover every possible scenario. Things will unfold in ways that you've never expected. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you get these, um, you know, these, these black swan events yeah. that you couldn't have foreseen coming. Mm-hmm. But you would hope that the people in your organization, someone is able to put those pieces together and then raises their hand. Yeah. And then even more importantly, as leaders, yep. you got to listen to them. Yeah. You got to listen to yeah. them. You know, and, and that can be hard. Yeah. That can be hard. It's, it's ego. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But you got to set the ego aside. And, and especially in the business I'm in with you know, sure. large scale power distribution. Yep. Lives are on the line. Oh, yeah. You, there's nothing more sacred than that. You know, right. who cares about your profits? If one person dies, right. you got to live with that for the rest of your life. You know, Travis Scott's going to have to live with 9, 10, 11 deaths yeah. for the rest of his life. Forget the commercial implications. Yeah. Like, it's on your conscience, man. It's, absolutely. Or at least for any reasonable person. Sure. You know, it sure should be. Should be. It should be. Yeah. Scott, it's been, you know, uh, multiple times that I get goosebumps listening to your story here. Um, and unfortunately, this is not the last time something of this nature is going to happen in the world. And, uh, you know, part of the reason why we have this podcast is to be here to give it a voice mm-hmm. and to give people, if they're willing to listen, a clear path to trying to prevent it. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as full prevention, but there's good defense and no defense. And in many ways, what we're trying to do here, what we're on a mission to do is to lay out a good game plan to play some good defense. And um, we look forward to welcoming you back, you know, on the podcast at you know some point in the future to talk about power systems and risk management around that. You know, no one wants to cover these kinds of things, but it's super, super important, I think, for us to do so when they happen because, you know... It, this never should have happened. No, absolutely. And you know, I, I thought I had the understanding of a strong risk culture before, mm-hmm. um, but this firsthand experience has changed my perspective. Oh yeah. You know, it, it's just further to double down how important it is to cultivate that culture and to trust your people and empower them. Yeah. Whatever your organization is, whoever you are, empower and listen to your people. They're the ones that are closest to the situation. Yep. You know, and nothing should be prioritized above the life of a human being. Bingo. Couldn't have said it better myself. All right, folks, if you want the show notes, including pictures, links, mentions, and anything else that we've talked about in this episode, you can head over to www.riskmanagementpodcast.com, episode three, featuring Scott King. With that, we will see you guys next time. 
the Risk Management Podcast is a production of Titan Grey, Global Risk and Crisis Management, and is hosted by Rex Chatterjee. If you found our content helpful, please take a moment to give us a review and to hit the like and subscribe buttons for more great content. To reach us, send an email to info at riskmanagementpodcast.com. This recording is a copyright of Titan Grey LLC with all rights reserved. Thank you for listening. Until next time, stay safe out there.